swept away by Josh Hammer from GQ. The avalanche ripped the Italian hotel from its foundation and reduced it to rubble. How could anyone inside have survived? He was pinned in the darkness by the weight of beams and walls, ice and earth. His heart sped with a sudden terror. What happened? Where am I? Laying on his stomach, he surveyed what he could. His left leg had been twisted and thrust forwards so that his foot rested near his cheek. He could move his left arm, but his right arm and leg were crushed beneath something enormous. He realised with horror that his chin rested on the knee of a corpse. He tried to still the panic, to recall the moments before everything went dark. He had been speaking to his wife. They were standing in a doorway. And then, the whistling gust of wind, the sense of tumbling through space, the sounds of coughing, moaning, then horrifying silence. Had it been an earthquake? He called to his wife but heard no answer. He thought about their five-year-old daughter in Rome. Then he heard voices, faint at first, but growing more distinct. Giampaolo? Giampaolo? a woman called. She was close, and she was trapped here too. Are you alive? I'm alive, he shouted. I'm alive! Nestled on the flanks of Italy's Apennine Mountains, above the town of Farandola, the Hotel Rigopiano had never been easy to reach but then its isolation only added to its appeal. So too did the resort's well-known spa, adorned with Roman-style frescoes, shimmering marble floors and burbling fountains. It attracted Italian pop stars and celebrities. George Clooney had even stayed there in 2009. Wealthy holidaymakers paid well to enjoy the mountains as if they were theirs alone. In plenty of ways, it was true. There were no other buildings for kilometres. The resort stood just inside the Grand Sasso National Park, situated among sandstone peaks that for millions of years have thrust upwards from the Earth's centre. In January 2017, snow began to fall across the Grand Sasso. For days it came down, and the enormous drifts ringing the Rigopiano grew taller by the hour. From his home in the suburbs of Rome, about 200 kilometres away, Giampaolo Matrone had watched the weather with rising concern over the trip he'd been planning. The overnight getaway to a spa was supposed to be a treat for his wife, Valentina Sicioni. But now he wondered if they should make the drive and whether the mountain road to the hotel was even open. Matrone phoned the Rigopiano. Its owner, Roberto Del Rosso, said Matrone simply needed chains on his tyres. Tranquilo, Del Rosso said. It won't be a problem. What Del Rosso kept to himself was that things were growing bleak. Food and supplies at his hotel were running low, and with only a single snowplough, officials in town were struggling to keep the road open. It's hard to know exactly why Del Rosso encouraged more guests up the mountain. Maybe it was hope that the weather would clear. The fact is, things didn't get better and by the time Matrone and his wife reached Farandola, they were battling a total whiteout. At the base of the mountain, they joined a line of cars inching along behind a small snowplough. A police officer urged Matrone to head back down the mountain, but turning around on the skinny road was now nearly impossible, 
and besides, he had paid good money for the room. When the guests in the convoy finally reached the hotel, they were cold and exhausted. They found logs aflame in the fireplaces and candles burning in the unfussy reception area. But the atmosphere wasn't entirely cosy. They could hear the storm strengthening outside in the dark. Don't be angry, start enjoying this, Del Rosso said, announcing that he would keep the spa open an extra hour to help the new arrivals unwind. Outside, Matrone and Sissioni slid into the thermal pool. They tried to forget their long day in the car. But the wind and the thick, wet snow were unrelenting. Soon they retreated indoors, where the conversation at dinner was troubling. I'm more scared than you, a waiter confided. I've been stuck here for six days. By now, snow covered the restaurant's windows, and the storm showed no signs of stopping. Before they clicked off the light to go to sleep in room 103, Matrone turned to his wife. The only thing we need now, he said in jest, is an earthquake. That night, the hotel had just 28 guests, but it could have been worse. Business had always been brutal in the winter. Since it had been built in 1958 as a modest hiker's hut, the Rigo Piano had closed up during the snowy months, even after it became a hotel in 1967. With no ski slopes nearby to attract visitors, the hotel was tough to sustain. Things got so bad in the 1990s that the hotel was abandoned and fell to ruin. It had been something of a surprise when Del Rosso, the nephew of the original proprietor, reopened the Rigopiano in 2007, pouring millions into a dramatic expansion, the centrepiece of which was a spa to lure guests up the mountain year-round but the resurrection had long borne a whiff of corruption. In 2012, prosecutors charged a handful of local officials and builders in a bribery scheme related to the project. After a drawn-out legal fight, the charges were dismissed for lack of evidence. Still, questions lingered about how Del Rosso had so quickly obtained a zoning variance for a major commercial expansion inside a national park. Beyond allegations of dodgy financial dealings, there were safety concerns. Pasquale Ionetti, an alpine guide who served on the town's avalanche commission, warned municipal officials in 1999 that the area, sitting in one of the most tectonically unstable corners of Europe, was susceptible to landslides and avalanches. Geological experts spoke up too, noting that the structure, located at the base of a canyon, sat in the path of a natural conduit for snow cascading down from Mount Siela. In fact, aerial photography had shown evidence of an avalanche in 1936 on the spot where the hotel now stood. As the guests awoke on Wednesday, January 18, they discovered that their predicament had worsened overnight. The cars in the parking lot were invisible. The phone and power lines were down. Mobile phone coverage always spotty on the mountain, had gotten worse. The only form of reliable communication was Wi-Fi through a satellite antenna. Faye Dame, a 42-year-old Senegalese immigrant who helped Del Rosso with maintenance work, was doing the best he could to clear a path in the driveway. Employees in the kitchen were trying hard to manage what was left of the dwindling provisions. For breakfast, they put out a few microwaved croissants, some marmalade and Nutella. After breakfast, Matrone and Sissioni returned to the spa and climbed into the jacuzzi. 
Matrone sank beneath the surface. And then, the hotel began to wobble. The windows rattled and the water in the tub sloshed over the edges. The couple leapt out of the jacuzzi. They didn't yet know exactly what had happened, that a quake measuring 5.7 on the Richter scale had struck the mountain. But Matrone had had enough. Let's get the baggage and get out of here, he told his wife, dressing quickly. Others followed him into the car park, where they began excavating their cars. Fifteen minutes after the first earthquake, another tremor hit, this one measuring 5.6. With a dozen vehicles freed, guests set off down the driveway. But when they reached the main road, the path was blocked by a two-metre-high wall of snow. Matrone climbed out of his car and scaled the drift. There was no road, just a glistening expanse of white powder. He turned and yelled down to his wife, We're trapped! They backtracked to the hotel, where Del Rosso assured his frustrated guests that the road would soon be ploughed. Around 1.30pm, as the guests ate lunch, their plates began to rattle with the dreadful shake of another tremor. Two hours later came a fourth quake. Del Rosso said there was nothing to fear. Authorities were working to help them all get off the mountain, he said. But in private, he was far less certain and was sharing his alarm by text message with a nephew in Pescara. There, Del Rosso's nephew, an employee of the hotel himself, emailed the provincial chief in Pescara at 3.30pm, copying in the mayor's office in Farandola, in a desperate plea to get a snowplough sent up to the hotel. Customers are terrified of earthquakes. Moments later, Del Rosso got a reply from his nephew. Farandola's only snowplough powerful enough to clear the road was out of commission, he was told. A replacement would not arrive until the evening. As the light outside faded, guests and workers alike searched for distraction. Adriana Vranchanu and her son huddled over a checkerboard in a playroom on the ground floor. She needed some aspirin and had sent her husband, Giampero Paretti, to find some in their car. Meanwhile, their daughter played pool with two other children down the corridor in the billiard hall. Matrone paced the reception area, anxiously discussing options with his wife. Del Rosso was just around the corner, in the hotel's handsome library nook. Half a dozen of his employees milled about in the kitchen. That was when the snow on Monte Siela began to slide. They heard the avalanche before they saw it. As the wall of snow and ice tumbled downward, it compressed the air into a terrible low whistle. As the avalanche gathered speed and size, it grabbed everything in its way and roared down the mountain. With the force of 4,000 fully loaded Mack trucks, the snow slammed into the hotel at 100 kilometres per hour. Walls buckled. The avalanche thundered through the kitchen, killing the workers there, including Faye Dame, the Senegalese handyman. It tore into the cove where Del Rosso had been standing, then raced across the two rooms where guests sat sipping hot drinks. Stefano Feniello, celebrating his 28th birthday, died instantly. His girlfriend, Francesca Bronzi, somehow stayed alive. Another young couple on a romantic getaway, Vincenzo Forti and Giorgia Galassi, were spared as well. The snow and the weight of everything it had brought down the mountain with it ripped the hotel from its foundation, collapsed it into a pile of rubble 
and sent debris flying more than 100 metres. When the tossing and tumbling came to a stop, those caught inside were left buried in the icy heap of rock and ruin. All was now still. Everything had gone dark. Fabio Salzetta, the resort's caretaker, had been working in the tiny boiler hut about 30 metres from the main building when he noticed an eerie silence. He tried to throw open the door, but it wouldn't budge. The little outbuilding was sealed in snow, so he pried away the window frame and wriggled outside. Standing on an empty snowfield, he gazed at a trail of sheer destruction, as if a rake had been dragged down the mountain, toppling beech trees, crushing cars, chewing up everything in its path. Salzetta felt numb. He trudged forwards in the snow, sinking to his knees. Wait, where was the hotel? Then he saw the tip of the hotel's roof poking out of a pyramid of ice-topped rubble. The entire building had been bulldozed down the hill. Salzetta noticed a figure stumbling across the snow. It was Giampero Perete, a chef from the Adriatic coast. Moments before the avalanche had struck, he'd gone to get some aspirin for his wife from their car. Are you okay? Salzetta called out. Perete appeared disoriented, distraught. My family is inside the hotel, he wailed. Salzetta, keeping his composure, cleared the snow from the exhaust pipe of Perete's BMW X5 and the two climbed inside. Finding a cell signal with Perete's phone seemed to take forever. At least 30 times they dialed the emergency number only to lose the connection. At last, they reached a dispatcher and Perete blurted out what had happened. That's impossible, she insisted. I have family inside, Perete yelled. I promised on the life of my son it was an avalanche. But the emergency dispatcher, perhaps confusing Perete's report with an earlier call about a possible house collapse, was sure that he was exaggerating. Perete hung up in frustration. For two hours they tried with no success to get a better signal. Finally, around 7pm, Perete reached the owner of the restaurant where he worked. Again, Perete explained what had happened. Call the emergency number, he told his boss. Help us. The boss jumped into action. A few minutes later, Perete's phone rang. On the line was Antonio Crocetta, the chief of the region's alpine rescue team. We're coming, Crocetta promised him. How long will it take? Five or six hours. Darkness had set in, and Perete and Salzetta sat alone and afraid inside the car the motor running, the heat now blasting. At his base in the village of Penne, Crocetta alerted the military police and mobilised his team of 14 men trained in rescue operations. Reaching the resort would mean trekking 10 kilometres up the mountain. By 9pm, the rescue squad, which included a surgeon, an anaesthetist, a dog handler, a search dog and two veteran alpine guides, assembled on the road just outside Farandola. Each man carried a shovel and a sonder, a collapsible probe used to poke through snow and rubble to prod for bodies. They slipped on cross-country skis, pulled on their masks and trained their headlamps into the storm. Then they started, single file, up the mountain. The snow was falling so hard, the wind blowing so strongly, that the men could see only a few metres ahead. Across their path, fallen trees blocked the way. 
When they could, the responders clambered over the downed logs. When they couldn't, they stopped to chop at the trees with saws and axes. Six hours after leaving Farandola, rescuers noticed the first signs of the disaster. A wide snowfield strewn with toppled trees. They heard the hum of a generator and saw the distant lights of the resort's spa. Drawing closer, they could make out the twinkling bulbs of a Christmas tree. There was no movement anywhere. No human sound, just rubble. While others circled the destroyed hotel, rescuers spotted two headlights. About 180 metres away sat Salzetta and Parete in the BMW. The rescuers raced in their direction. How many people are in the hotel, one asked. About 40, Salzetta replied. Can you give us an idea of where they might be? Salzetta offered his best guesses. As rescuers wrapped Parete in a thermal blanket and took him down the mountain on a stretcher, other team members began probing the snow with their sondas. They found the first body after about an hour, buried under two metres of snow. It was Gabriel D'Angelo, Salzetta's colleague. Alessandro Giancaterino, the maitre d' of the hotel's restaurant, was found buried nearby. Later, Del Rosso's body would be discovered beneath the rubble that crushed him as his hotel disintegrated. As the Alpine team probed for corpses, Giampaolo Matrone lay in a coffin-sized pocket of air beneath ten metres of snow, ice and rubble. He could hear nothing of what was happening at the surface. Shock had set in and he felt no pain, no hunger, no cold. Although the temperature was well below freezing, he felt a powerful urge to shed everything that he was wearing. With great contortions, he wriggled free of his jacket and tore off his right shoe so that his naked foot lay against ice and snow. He began to drift in and out of consciousness. Surreal imagery drifted through his mind. At one point, he was walking alongside his wife through Monterotondo, towards the bakery his family operated there, taking note of every shop, every street corner, every crack in the pavement. The thoughts were strange and richly detailed. He imagined rescuers swooping in on magic carpets, dressed like Aladdin in the Arabian Nights. In another vision, his best friend, a bodybuilder, materialised on the mountain, lifting tons of concrete and setting Matrone free. Each time Matrone awoke, he confronted anew the terrible reality. He was buried alive. Despair washed over him. Who is going to save us, he asked himself. Rescue specialist and expert canine trainer Lorenzo Botti arrived on the mountain with his dogs on Thursday morning, the day after the avalanche, to assist. Looking at the remains of the hotel, he made a quick assessment. No chance of survivors. By now, helicopters were bringing firefighters who, like Botti, would begin picking through the rubble. Police technicians had set up an antenna that allowed them to home in on buried mobile phones. Wherever there were phones, there would be people, or more likely, bodies. Botti began by slithering into the spa, which seemed remarkably intact. He moved carefully past dangling concrete and a reinforcing bar. At the reception desk, he flipped through the appointment book. It was blank for Wednesday afternoon, confirming his hunch that the spa had been empty when the avalanche struck. He turned his attention to the ten-metre-tall mound, 
buried under snow that constituted the main structure of the hotel. After studying a crude floor plan drawn by Salzetta, Botti and his men mounted the wreckage, shoveled through four metres of snow, and when they found the top of the building, began soaring into the roof. Working in teams of three or four, firefighters and members of the Alpine rescue team carefully lowered themselves through the apertures they'd cut. Lights fastened to their helmets illuminated the twisted debris. The space was so cramped the rescuers had to crawl on their bellies. For hours they called out for survivors. Finally, at 11am on Friday, more than 30 hours after the search began, they heard something astonishing. A woman crying for help. We are firefighters, one of the rescuers screamed back. Who are you? I am Adriana. How many are you? I'm in a room with my son, she said. My daughter's inside, in the next room. Adriana Vrancenu, whose husband had gone to fetch her aspirin from their car before the avalanche and then phoned for help, was bleeding from a head wound when firefighters found her and her son squeezed together in a crawl space. As they were led to safety, Adriana was told that her husband had been evacuated to a nearby hospital. Finding the survivors electrified the rescuers, but what Adriana told them made an even bigger impact. There are many other people inside the hotel. The firefighters tunnelled quickly towards the nearby billiard room, cut a small hole in the roof, focused a searchlight and lowered a video probe. Gathered around a screen, the team saw two small kids emerge from behind a sofa, including Adriana's daughter, drawn by the light from the hole in the roof. Somehow, the entire room appeared intact. Through a hole in the wall, firefighters found three children. Stay calm, a rescuer said. Get on your bellies, make like a centipede. Carefully but quickly, the men ushered the children out of the rubble. Meanwhile, another squad of rescuers picked up on a phone signal coming from a crawl space. They soared towards voices crying for help. Soon they found the young couple, Galassi and Forti, as well as Bronzi, the girlfriend of Stefano Feniello, and they pulled them to safety. Who else is down here? Giampaolo Matrone, one of them said. It was after midnight now, Saturday, January 21, some 55 hours since the avalanche. The rescuers had been working non-stop for more than two days. The wreckage was frighteningly unstable. As they moved, the rescuers knew that the force of their digging and cutting, or another tremor, could bring it all down upon them. Paolo de Quinzio and three other alpine rescuers burrowed on, breaking blade after blade on their circular saws, battling towards a faint phone signal detected deep in the ruins. Suddenly, they heard a voice. They silenced their saws and listened. It was Matrone. He was still fading in and out of consciousness. A vision of his wife, Valentina, hovered over him. An angel of mercy, he thought. She assured him he would be okay. De Quinzio's team aimed heat lamps towards the crevice that contained Matrone, hoping that the warmth would ward off hypothermia. Giampaolo, we are here, De Quinzio shouted three metres above where the trapped man lay. Are you injured? Are you bleeding? As the voices and the buzzing of saws grew louder, Matrone became more alert. Be careful with the saw, he admonished the rescuers. Be careful, there is my wife, 
my daughter. In his confusion, he had forgotten that his daughter had remained in Rome. We have put them in the car because it's cold, De Quinzio lied. He kept the conversation going, trying to keep Matrone conscious. What's your profession? I'm a baker. At last, around six in the morning, De Quinzio's saw broke through a final thick layer of insulation. De Quinzio could see how the angled concrete beams had created a small cocoon that prevented Matrone from being crushed to death. Those near him had not been so lucky. Squeezed in the space with him were the bodies of two women. One supporting his head, one curled beneath his left leg. Reaching him finally, De Quinzio wrapped a cloth around Matrone's head so he couldn't see the bodies. We're covering your eyes because of the dust, De Quinzio told him. Matrone played along, knowing he had shared the space with at least one body. Rescuers slipped body bags around the two dead women and pulled them through the hole. As his eyes adjusted to the artificial light, Matrone studied his pinned arm with horror. The wrist had swollen to four times its normal size, and most of the limb had turned black. The rescuers raised the concrete beams off Matrone's limbs with a hydraulic jack. You are a badass guy, a superhero, De Quinzio said, as he reached beneath Matrone's armpits and lifted him out of his tomb. The rescuers gently placed him on a mattress. Matrone gazed up at a dozen faces, silhouetted by the light of their headlamps. A cheer went up in the small crowd. Bravo! For the first time since the avalanche, Matrone felt cold. Wrapped in a thermal blanket, he was airlifted by helicopter to a hospital in Pescara. Gangrene had burrowed deep into his right arm. The nerves in his right angle had practically been destroyed. When he awoke from the first of many surgeries, Matrone was told that had he been rescued even two hours later, his arm would certainly have been lost. Five days after his rescue, Matrone was given the news that his wife had died one of 29 people killed by the avalanche. Her body had been found, crushed by debris, next to where Matrone had been trapped. The angel who had appeared to him in his fitful dreams had, unbeknown to him, never left his side. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.